0: Hello and welcome to Explore, the podcast where we talk with business leaders about their careers and their industries. Today, I'm joined with Basil Senesi. he's currently the Chief Revenue Officer of Arc Technologies, a startup that helped company manage their cash. Prior to that, he helped build Phonebox, a startup that now has the status of Unicorn and is worth more than a billion dollars. He is also a well-known Silicon Valley angel investor. And on top of all of that, he also has a one yard in California. I don't really know how Basil fits that in his calendar. He is a really busy person, but it was great to have him on the show. In this episode, we talked a lot about fintech. The term financial technology, also known as fintech, is used to describe new technologies that 6 to improve and automate the delivery and use of financial services. Basil has built his entire career around that And that's why we talked a lot about it today. I hope you have a great episode. This time it's only audio, but next time you're also going to have video on YouTube. And please leave any feedback so that we can improve the quality of the episode. See you next time. Have a great episode. I must say first, a massive thank you for taking the time and really jumping into the unknown as it's the first episode. And if you don't mind, I've got a set of fire question to get started. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited and honored to be the first. So happy to take any questions.
0: Lovely. So first week question: who are you, where are you from, and where do you currently live?
1: Yeah, who am I? I'll give you the, the shortest answer possible, but I'm an absolute fintech nerd. I picked the hardest possible subset of tech, in my opinion, one that is really hard to make work, and I've gotten really good at that. I'm a family man. We've got a baby and a dog at home, and I've been living now in Marin County, just outside of San Francisco for a few years with my wife. But before all that, I actually was born and raised in the Jura in France. So nothing at all to do with tech. And through luck and happenstance, found my way in the Bay Area about 20 plus years ago. Um, made a lot of sense uh, to do this, this little thing called tech sales back then. And, you know, one thing led to another and, and here we are.
0: Yeah, no, that's really funny because uh, what I wanted to ask you is what was your dream job as a kid? Um, versus what do you do now? Because I, I guess you were born in the south of France and um, you wouldn't have imagined to end up in software coding tech sales, right? <laughs>
1: That's for sure. You know, I, I was like thinking about this and I was talking to my wife the other day, of, at which point did, did life change and like you end up in the journey that you find yourself and you wake up one day and you're like, wow, this is actually my career. This is the, the path that I've decided to walk down. It's not immediate when you decide, you know, on your first job in that path, that this is the path. And one big passion before this, which had nothing to do with anything I'm doing now, I was a huge bike nerd. I love bikes. And I wanted to be everything from a bike racer to a bike mechanic. In college, I actually spent four years working and then eventually running a bike shop. And I was a, you know, called a gearhead. Like, I loved getting my hands dirty and fixing them and riding them and, like, just tinkering with all of it. Never in my wildest dreams back then did I think that this would be the journey that I'd be on. And I'm confident that someday maybe when, you know, these companies all exit and we can retire alongside the winery there'll be a bike shop too that we can we can enjoy. So should be should be fun.
0: Yeah, that would really bring it full circle if you do that, you know. I think getting that first experience to last experience would be amazing. I think I really would want to start with your passion because you said you had a bike shop. Then you went into FinTech because you loved it. And really I think that's what brought you to Funbox in 2015, where you started your career. You were there from day one, isn't it? Yeah, I joined at Seed Stage, so I think I was employee number 12 or 13
1: or something like that, and one of the very first in the U.S. The company had started out in Tel Aviv and just decided to kind of take their product to market, and so I was the the first.
0: Uh, commercial or sales hire for for that new team and can you tell us a bit about what funbox is doing and you know what it was solving in the past when it was created versus what it it is solving now in the market
1: yeah funbox was one of the original fintechs back when you know fintech was really kind of coming on the scene you had a bunch of waves to fintech you know back in the early 2000s payments was really the the first kind of wave but then back in 2013. FinTech started really going after the credit market. And for us specifically at Funbox, we were solving the problem of helping small businesses raise, you know, debt in order to run their business. You know, coming from a bike shop, I felt very strongly about supporting the small business community. I'd seen firsthand how broken banking for small business was, how inaccessible capital and credit were for them. And so Funbox was really trying to solve that problem in a new way. You know, like I said, I was the first sales hire there. So what that meant was, Talking to contractors, to landscapers, to you know, recruiting agency owners about a different way to to capitalize and ultimately borrow to to continue running and grow their business. It was new. It was novel. People didn't like the idea of sharing financials in a way that was different than how they'd been used to doing it before. And so there was a lot of convincing, a lot of market education. Ultimately, you know, we we managed to build a pretty loyal, large, fast-growing customer base, underpinned by revolutionary and new ways of assessing credit risk without using the traditional indicators that lenders had relied on for a long time, like credit scores and P&Ls and uh, traditional accounting information. Instead, we made the process a lot less painful and a lot more fair by directly integrating with their data sources used to run the business. Sounds common today, but this was before the days of Plaid or Kodat. We were pulling in QuickBooks data, We were pulling in banking information and so made things really easy. It also gave us a much better view, both upfront and in an ongoing way as to the health of the customers that were, you know, borrowing money from us. And, you know, we were able to make really good credit decisions as a result of that. So the early years were a lot about education, a lot about, you know, selling, but teaching before eventually really scaling that function through, you know, through multiple
0: rounds of fundraising and and a lot of customers. And would you say as a first salesman that you had like right away product market fit?
1: You know, I think product market fit is a funny thing. It, it's not something that you know you have most of the time in the moment. It's something you look back on and realize that like, okay, this is probably the point where we found it. And so I think the short answer is in hindsight, yeah, we were solving a problem the market really wanted and we were doing it in a way that was very different and revolutionary at the time. People were excited about that opportunity and, you know, believing in the, the better way that we saw to, to fund small businesses. But it took time for that to kind of permeate our growth. It didn't start overnight. You know, we had to find the unlocks. I think in hindsight, the thing that really helped us find product market fit, the, the thing that came closest to like we woke up one day and, you know, the, the gates opened and customers came mm-hmm. rushing in was our partnership with, with Intuit, with QuickBooks. We were one of the very first to be able to provide embedded financing meaning like the option to apply for credit inside of another platform and we did that in quickbooks back in 2015-16 and just the level of uptake the level of you know interest that we saw for customers overnight once that went live was very meaningful and that's probably the closest thing we had to like an aha pmf moment but i do think we were solving a problem from the very beginning that was valuable that people
0: wanted no, especially in 2015, which, as you said, like was really early years for the fintech industry. I I looked at the data for the French area. I must say, like we are quite behind the US on that, but like definitely 2015 wasn't the time of fintech. Fast though, Paris is on the scene now. It is really going fast. The French tech has been amazing the last few years. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we are yet at the same level as the US in terms of capital, you know, available. So just going back more like of your journey within the company, you held tons of roles within the company, different roles as well. I was wondering, like, kind of, how did you know it was time for change and what led you to, you know, go up the rank in that, I would say, unusual path? <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, it's a good question. I mean, look, I think, realistically, when I when I started my my polished professional tech career into it, there was a path and there was a ladder and there was, like, different kind of doors you could open and walk down, but ultimately there was like pretty clear cut ways of advancing your career. And that was the mindset I was in initially at Funbox when I joined was, you know, you do something for a while and you move on to the next thing. I think what I realized pretty quickly, and this lesson stuck with me since then is, your career finds you, like the things that you're good at and the things that add value to the business end up creating the opportunities of tomorrow. And if you focus on solving the challenges in front of you right now, Inevitably, the answer to the business continuing to perform and grow often means rewarding the people who helped it get to that point with additional career opportunity. You know, sure, like I got promoted along the way and I felt really good when that happened, but it never really felt like I was asking for a promotion and given a promotion. It was always, look, this is what the business needs right now, and I'm the best person to do that. And it often, by the way, you know, creates this like, groundswell this bottoms up movement when those changes happen because what would inevitably you know play out is one person selling the product me needs more people selling the product but then those people need to be managed and so that creates some upward mobility for me to hire other people and then even as that team gets bigger we realize look now we need to retain the customers we've acquired and so we need to invest in a customer support function well I can't go and focus on that if I don't have someone running the sales team So that creates a more bottoms-up opportunity for people to step in and step up and backfill and hire additional sales reps to continue running that function, even as we build support. So it was this continuous journey of like success, drives growth, drives advancement. And where I took my career within that advancement, within that growth opportunity, really was just a function of what does the business need right now? It was never, you know, I never woke up and said, hey, I want to run the collections team or I want to run support. I never woke up saying, operations sounds like a really fun thing that the you know the seal like woke up deciding to do today it was okay we have a gap here like who can step in to solve that gap who has the right rough skill set or the ability to learn the right skill set to just do it quickly and you know the more you do that the more you develop a well-rounded skill set that ultimately does allow you to be more thoughtful once you move on from the company to pick a path that is really aligned with what you want to do professionally so to answer your question more succinctly, like I never really chose; it chose me because I was driving growth in the company, and those things needed to to be solved and supported. And I was the right person in the right place at that time.
0: Yeah, it's funny because you never really thought about the next role, but more so like the next challenge, that, you know, was facing you, right? So that's that's a good way of doing it, I guess. At least it proved successful for you, so. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I mean, you know, to be frank and fair, it's not always the right path. It was the right path for me. And I think it's very much a common path within startups um, because you have this kind of just massive growth that creates all this, this upward opportunity. It creates friction too, by the way, right? Like people grow into roles they're not ready for and it creates all sorts of other challenges and people aren't always set up for success and it's really hard and it creates frustration and friction, but it does unlock a lot of opportunity. That career trajectory would look very different. At a growth stage later stage company or even a you know large enterprise public business because there there's been more repetition around the the motion the playbook building out these teams and it's more about running the functions rather than building them at a startup because
0: you need to constantly build the next thing you you create this opportunity oh definitely that's really interesting and as you went up the rank of the company i was wondering like, did you have any exposure to when the company was raising money because i've heard Funbox raised about a hundred million dollars in Series D.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So not initially at Funbox later on, yes. And then ultimately today at Arc and, you know, the other companies I've supported, it's, it's most of what I do at Funbox, I was on the receiving end of the round announcements, probably through our Series B. I started getting pulled in a little bit more to both diligence and preparation ahead of rounds. You know, from that point on, and then, you know, by the time I left the, the business, I had a line in and, you know, was one of the, the the commentators on business performance for my specific business units at our board meetings, et cetera. But I was never driving the, you know, the capital raise process. And by the way, Fundbox was particularly unique, as many fintechs are, in that we had two capital raises. We had equity capital, which we raised from VCs, and we had a whole debt facility side to the business, which is incredibly intensive and equally difficult, if not harder that we also had to contend with. So there was a lot to get exposed to, a lot of moving parts. I wasn't driving it, but I was very much in the mix and, and solving for bits and pieces of it. At Arc, you know, I joined between our seed and our Series A, and so I got to see the tail end of the seed round, and I got to be very present and active in in our Series A discussion. And without, you know, spoiling the surprise, given the recent trajectory we've had at Arc and the success we've enjoyed, we're very much thinking about the next milestone the next equity raise as well and so that occupies my thinking quite a bit it's also fortunate that a lot of the you know businesses we support are venture back startups and a lot of them look to us to me for advice on how do you you know raise especially early rounds your seed round your pre-seed your series a i am happy to unpack a lot of you know my thoughts there but ultimately it boils down to one very simple thing are you a good storyteller and do you have the right underlying fundamentals to support that story in a way that people believe and ultimately want to write money with? A lot of hustle, a lot of grit,
0: more importantly, a lot of good storytelling, I think, goes, goes the longest way. And would you say it's better to have a good storyteller than a good product when you start?
1: Yeah, I think so, especially early on. Because if you think about what investors are, are buying, right, it changes throughout the life of the company. At the beginning, there's nothing other than the promise of what the future could hold. No matter how good your product is, investors aren't buying your product when you're a seed stage company. They're buying what they believe that product will unlock for you in the long run. And of course, it's not to trivialize the importance of your product, but you have time to match the story to the reality. Once you get to growth stage, you know, your Series B+, it's all around, look, is your story believable because you've delivered on bits and pieces of that story from a performance perspective? That's always been true. It's particularly true now in this market, in this tougher, you know, more capital deprived environment. Today, you know, when we go to raise our Series B, like sure the story matters, but the story that investors truly care about is are you unit economic efficient? Are you posting good growth? Is your top and bottom line looking healthy? And ultimately, do we continue to believe that you're able to win this space? Early on, that story is everything. That story is what you have. Yeah. And, you know, I've never seen bad storytellers raise interesting rounds up front unless there were some massively differentiated technological edge that they had that allowed them to do that. That's a very rare thing. Most of them are very good storytellers.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially because when you raise the money in early on, it's like more to build your product than anything else. So <laughs> makes sense That's, that yeah. they don't buy that. So, yeah, I was just wondering, like, just to round up on uh, Funbox, why did you decide to quit the company, especially as it was successful, and move to your next thing?
1: Yeah, you know, I learned a lot at Funbox.
0: I was really privileged to see
1: what growth looks like in a successful kind of case. The reality is most startups fail. And even Funbox, since, you know, I've left, has hit its fair share of challenges, given the macro and given the economy, et cetera seeing what those lessons of like good company growth look like from from zero to one and one to ten and ten to hundred, like that was really rare. You don't usually get that experience. And I realized like by the time we got to, you know, 120, 130 million in run rate, the challenges started to look very different as well. The the things that, you know, consumed my days were very different. When you start having large teams, when you start having public market pressure that you're trying to solve for and the need to drive polish across the organization rather than, you know, iteration and speed of execution and just pure growth, like it it creates a whole host of different things. Now, it's not to say I wasn't learning at that point because I probably learned as much in the late stage days of Funbox as I did in the early stages. But I learned one thing about myself by the time we got there, which is look, I like to build. I'm a done is better than perfect kind of guy. I'm a you know, I want output, I want advancement, I want growth, I want like the thing that is rewarded and valuable in the environment in which I'm in is forward momentum, not perfect polish and perfection. And when you get to Series D and you're getting ready for IPO, the conversations are very different than they are at the beginning. I didn't have a time machine. If I did, I would have loved to go back to the start of Funbox and take all the lessons I learned and apply them to building a better business. The next best thing I could do, right, was go after another early-stage business where I could take that skill set and apply it again because it's what I love to do. I'm a builder.
0: Yeah. yeah, and we felt so many stories. Like Mark Randolph, the co-founder of Netflix, was saying, like, I left the company when it became big because I was uh, good at building stuff, not at lead- like leading a big company. So many people like that. It's something that's recurring, I feel like. Yeah. Great. So let's uh, move on more like to your other experience what I've observed reading through your profile on LinkedIn is that you are an investor and strategic advisor for many companies and I was wondering like how do you manage to split up your time between these companies it's not what you do because I feel like it's always a skill set which is really important
1: yeah it's it's a good question so you know it kind of all started when I was when I'd made up my mind to leave Funbox and before I had left before it was public but after you know I had kind of broken the news to our CEO and we were working on my transition out, I I knew I wanted to leave, but I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. And I wanted to be really thoughtful in that next thing. And the best way for me to find out was to actually get to know early stage founders because I anchor so heavily on team and people when I make a decision on like who to support and, and back. And one of the best ways I could do that, right, was to like sit down with them and understand what challenges they were facing and see if I could help. And through attempted interview conversations, I realized, look, I might actually be able to add a ton of value to a lot of these different founders who are excited at the prospect of working closely with somebody who has go-to-market experience that they lack and being able to kind of infuse that skill set early into their companies. Started as attempted interviews, it turned into an advisory business for about a year or so. And then eventually, you know, within, within that, that window of time one of those companies, Hum Capital, needed a more permanent person to join the team. And so I made the, the jump from, you know, having a bunch of different clients to pairing back my number of clients and having Hum be the largest. And then, you know, about a year after that, ARC, which was also one of the conversations I'd been having for some time, was even more convincing and, you know, had me effectively put the advisory business on pause and join them full time. So that's, that's how I kind of went from, you know, Funbox to ARC with an advisory stint in the middle. And I thought when I joined ARC that the time commitment to ARC as a full-time CRO would just be so massive that I wouldn't have room um, to keep this business alive. What I didn't appreciate was the fact that there's actually a lot of overlap in the clients that we support at ARC, the type of advice and value that I can add to them from the ARC perspective and how well that fits with, you know, the advisory work that I've done in the past and the angel work that I've done in the past. And so to, you know, maybe answer your question a little bit more succinctly, like how do I balance it today? I don't have to. They're two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, I can have a conversation with a seed stage founder about, you know, how ARC can support their growth. While on the other hand, in that same conversation, I can provide real meaningful advice to that founder on how to get to the next round by building up a better go-to-market function. And I can help them with that next round by virtue of the connections and the network that we've developed through Arc. whether that is connecting them with the right investors who believe in their thesis, whether it's me believing in their thesis and wanting to invest a portion of my my personal capital into that founder. So it's all been very connected. There's a lot of symbiotic kind of relationship between the advisory side, the investment side, and my full-time CRO role. Otherwise, you're right. It would be impossible, I think, to balance all of it. Um, they have to make sense. They have to be compatible. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I guess what
0: takes you more time to?
1: Yeah, I think in order it's it's our six month old son, and then it's the CRO role because you know ultimately like building at a growth at a, at a company of our stage with this much velocity is a full time job. So I, I probably spend most of my time, most of my you know sleepless nights. Thinking about solving problems for Arc and for Arc's growth trajectory, the advisory business and the you know investing business are much more natural extensions of that. I spend time on it, but again, it's it often overlaps with the time that I'm already spending on Arc, and it's a secondary thought, even if it's a very interesting part of you know what I what I like to do every day. It's part of what adds spice and fun to the the work
0: week. And can you tell us where you're invested currently? Because I know you work a lot with fintech. I know you have your one yard, but I was wondering if you have any other industries that you're invested in at the moment.
1: Yeah, you know, my investment thesis, if I oversimplify it, it's I only invest in founders who are building what they are building because they had no other choice, who were born to build the companies that they are building. The founder I don't like to invest in is an ex-McKinsey MBA who got into a room and said, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't know what to do. So I'm going to look at a bunch of market maps and figure out what my company should be. Nothing wrong with that per se. And there's a lot of great businesses that have been built like that. But the investors, I truly believe, have what it takes to build something great, have lived through so much pain that they needed to build a solution to that pain and have the grit and the motivation and the drive to push through the inevitable challenges that come with being an entrepreneur. So I've invested in you know, consumer marketplace businesses. I've invested in payment startups and I've invested in B2B SaaS companies. It's been a whole range. The common thread amongst all of them is those founders could not have possibly
0: done anything else than quit their jobs and start those companies. And do you have a risk associated with that, that they are so focused on their niche specifically for so long that they don't see you know, the bigger picture?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very good it's a very good call, right? I mean, like inherently it's a it's a risky it's a risky proposition to back a founder who oftentimes doesn't come from like a polished, you know, multi-company, multi-founder experience kind of a background and who, who's not necessarily a born operator. Generally, I've been really good at identifying the ones who have the operator chops because I'm an operator myself, and a lot of it boils down to their ability to know what they don't know and surround themselves with the right people to help them see around the corner. To be clear, you know, even if I invest in founders that like have lived this problem, I also invest in founders who are solving a big problem. And so generally, it's less about market sizing. It's less about like how niche is this. The real risk is, look, it's one thing to understand the space and understand the problem. Can they actually execute? Can they build a great company? Can they put product together? Can they find distribution for their product? I like to find founders who are crazy enough to push through the noise, who are ego and have enough ego to know that they're the right person for the job, but who are humble enough to know what they don't know and ask for help and bring on help. And that's a lot of what we spend time talking through. And
0: do you feel like your role has been even more impactful now that we are through tough time from an economic point of view, like it's harder to raise capital? Do you think your role is even more important right now?
1: You know... Sure, I would say that it's it's easy to say this, but I genuinely believe this. Nothing's changed. The things that matter today mattered last year, mattered two years ago. The problem is, you know, that some of the things that that people doing things that didn't matter two years ago might still have been successful when today there's really only a handful of ways to be successful because the, you know, market has tightened to the point that it's only rewarding good operators, good builders, and people with good vision. You could get away with a lot more two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. And by the way, Funbox was built in one of the biggest bull markets of all time. And we had to learn the hard way during the COVID tightening and during the you know most recent kind of adjustment, how to make difficult decisions because we hadn't always made the right calls along the way. But I think with the founders that I support specifically, I've always preached the same thing. Look, like it's easier to raise if you have the right tailwind at your back. Your job in the very first few early days is to get those tailwinds going, to show investors that you have the right traction, to delight your customers, to get absolutely just ruthless and relentless on fo- focusing on great customer-like experience, even as you're driving towards early investor traction. You know, we did that in 21. We do that today. That hasn't changed. I fundamentally believe that.
0: Yeah. It's just maybe the size of the investment that you you make or the size of the investment startup receive might be smaller.
1: It's it's more efficient today, right? And I mean, look, here's the thing is more money is sounds good, but more money is is oftentimes a poison pill, right? Because the more you take, the more you need to deliver on to make good on that. Ultimately, money is a function of valuation. And either you sell more of the company away for more money or you inflate the price of the company to take on more dollars. When you sell too much of the company away, you lose your own long-term motivation to make it work because like you know if you dilute yourself so much up front why should you care in the way a founder needs to care to keep going and conversely if you don't dilute yourself but you raise at an ungodly valuation you're setting yourself up to fail you can't get to a point where well it's a lot harder to get to a point where you can deliver on the metrics that you need to to make it happen so i've always believed and look take only what you need not more and run efficient, run lean. I mean, ARC runs incredibly lean. Most of the companies I've enjoyed working for and, and working with have founding teams that, you know, frankly, run their teams on the edge because that's the way that great businesses are built. It's under pressure that like really good things come. Even if it's really hard, and frankly, it's why startups are not for everybody. We're seeing that today. Two years ago, startups could be easy because money was free. Today, We're seeing what real startups are made of. And that's really, really hard stuff. But there's a lot of good out there. for them.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. We almost at the end of the call, I just wanted to quickly transition to a section where we would talk more about career advice for, specifically for lean career, but not only. I do have uh, just a couple of questions. First of all, what is the worst advice and best advice you received throughout your career? This is the worst advice and best advice.
1: The worst advice I've probably ever gotten, frankly, is like follow your passion. <laughs> because the reality is passion by itself doesn't pay the bills and doesn't drive long-term fulfillment, right? Like you need to find the combination of passion, skill, and and what makes you money and what ultimately is lucrative if you're going to be kind of in this line of work. Match those three things up and you generally have a winning recipe, but like chase your passions by itself is a recipe for trying to be a bike mechanic who can't pay the bills in San Francisco. There's other ways to get there. The best advice I've ever gotten, it took me a long time to appreciate this. It took me until I like managed large teams of people to truly understand this this advice in context, but it's don't assume positive intent. Don't assume that people or your company are trying to screw you over. There's a lot of early career folks myself included frankly who believe that every decision that does not benefit them is a decision that is actually inherently against them, that is somehow used by somebody else to negatively impact the, the receiver. Oftentimes, what I realize is people just are missing a lot of context, and that the decision that makes sense for the business might not make sense for the individual. The best thing you can do is understand what those facts are so that you can align your career With the things that make sense for the business and it goes back to my earlier point right like why was i so successful at funbox and advancing it wasn't intentional but it was because i wasn't focused on advancing i was focused on what does the business need and the dollars in the business and the investment in the business are going to go towards what the business needs which inherently creates room for advancement and opportunity for growth solving for that i think is the biggest best piece of advice i've ever gotten it's not personal create value and figure out what the business needs and solve that.
0: Yeah, I think there is this famous quote from Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, where he's saying, don't wait for your next work to do your best job. And I think that's extremely what you've done at the phone box and made you successful. You are not looking for the next thing, but rather just doing the right thing in the moment, right? Right. And how do you think about success? Because I feel like career success can take so much different form depending on who you ask. For you, for example, you have were almost at the top of a company, which you quit to start or go and work for another company, right? Maybe some people wouldn't have done the same thing. So how did you think about success and about your next move?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the traditional indicators of success are, like, how much do I get paid? How much, what is the, like, level that I'm at? What do I get to call this? And then it's how easy or not easy is this? Like how flexible, how much life benefit do I have associated with these decisions, right? I'd be lying if I said those things don't matter. Of course, money matters. Of course, title matters. All those things are important to everybody. I think for me, what I look to to decide what the right role is really is about, it's about learning opportunity and it's about network. So I want to work in roles and do things in my career that challenge me and that push me to learn new skills, because those are the things that allow you to then ultimately advance. And I want to learn them from people who are really good at teaching those things. I want to work surrounded by people who are truly great. I had a boss once tell me, you know, if we started a farm, it would be the best farm in the world. Doesn't matter what business we're building. Like it's this, this team that matters. And that really stuck with me. It's not about the like actual product or the actual problem. It's about people solving problems. Learning from the right people is really, really valuable. To me, that's probably the biggest thing. And I mean, look, it's also having a really clear point of view on your values, right? Like for me, nothing's more important than family. I don't want a job where I have to compromise that. Even if the job has a higher title, if the job has a higher pay, that's not more important to me. What is more important to me is time with my son, time with my family. So having a clear understanding of what you care about and matching the other parameters of like a job to that is very important too.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think this round up the podcast really well because you said learning from the right people is so important. And that's actually why I wanted to launch a podcast to just go and talk with people i have done great things. Thank you for your time. Really, this concludes the first episode. I hope it's going to be a series of exploration and deep dive with many people. Really, thank you. This was a great discussion. I learned a lot. So I hope people which are going to listen to the podcast will learn a lot as well and really appreciate it. Thank you very soon
1: yeah of course it's mutual thanks for making time you go
0: well that's already the end of episode one i hope you learned a lot during this episode i think this first episode with basil was pretty successful and i had a blast having a discussion with him i can't wait for the next time i'm gonna record i will wait for basil to offer me a couple of options for me this network and until the next time i hope you continue to explore different industries and different careers and that you make your own pretty successful have a good day ahead